The Nonprofit Hour, a weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do-gooders, with interviews, profiles, and documentaries. It's the Nonprofit Hour, brought to you by the Media Institute for Social Change from the studios of X-Ray FM. I'm Ann Kirkpatrick. On this week's episode of the Nonprofit Hour, we'll be speaking with Debbie Castleton of the School and Community Reuse Action Project, also known as SCRAP. As a creative reuse artist myself, doing found objects collage, it was like, uh, you know, the heavens opened up, ah, you know, when I walked in. Then, a look back at our interview with Jeff Hawthorne of the Regional Arts and Culture Council. You know, some people really love it, some people don't care for it so much, and that's the nature of public art. To kick things off, we'll hear this story from X-Ray FM producer Eric Tagadoff. In the past few years, Portland has entered a new era. It's an era of urban growth, and that's partly because of transplants. I'm not excluding myself here. With that growth comes a changing landscape. You've probably noticed it. There are new buildings up and down every major street here. It's easy to understand why some native Portlanders might be weary of the 20 and 30-somethings flocking in. After all, what are we doing if not paving over a piece of Portland history every time we build a new apartment complex? But this era of urban growth we're in, it can also be the era of urban renewal. We can save the sacred monuments to our history. The Tabor Space program is doing just that, turning the historic Mount Tabor Presbyterian Church into a gathering place for the community. Let's go back to the history of the church. The Mount Tabor Presbyterian Church set down its stones at Belmont and 55th in 1910. For some historical perspective, that's the same year the Hawthorne Bridge was built, and it's the longest surviving bridge in Portland. One century and a few major additions later, you have the 36,000-square-foot church of today. Give or take a few bumps. 1999-ish, the building was condemned. And what had happened is that the foundation was crumbling in places. As it was becoming unstable from the foundation, the walls, like the wall of the coffee house, was actually tipping out toward the street. It was getting ready to fall down. That's Pastor Carly Friesen. She's been with the church for 14 years. Even in the early days, Pastor Carly thought the enormous church was underutilized. She envisioned a coffee shop in the oldest part of the church. And for the rest of it, she imagined a space where all members of the community could meet, not just the members of her congregation. Um, The thing that I find amazing, and I'm finding it all over the place, uh, is that the ancient traditions of sacred spaces were that they were community places. The community did everything there. It was their court space, it was their uh, family gathering space, it was their worship space, it was their bed and breakfast place. The sanctuaries had many purposes. Tabor Spaces Program Director Lauren Muma. I mean, I was really drawn to the church because it's so beautiful. You know, the craftsmanship is gorgeous, and it feels really inspiring and peaceful in this space. Right when I walked in the first time, I just like, this building is special, and it would be a beautiful community gathering place. Through Lauren and Pastor Carly's cooperative vision, Tabor Space was founded in 2008. Carly thought a coffee shop would be the open door to the community. Soon, neighbors were meeting in the commons area over lattes. The church is now a hub of activity, hosting nearly 5,000 events a year. 
There are yoga classes, writers' workshops, and meetings every Tuesday of pint-sized Picassos. I'm all done. Okay. I don't know how to write my name. Carly noticed the church had a heartbeat again. And the congregation noticed people sitting in the sanctuary, quietly reflecting. There were young people carried away from their modern distractions. There was something inspiring about this space that everyone could feel. Though maybe not as spiritual as our parents' generation, the millennial generation, that is my generation, understands the importance of churches. There is something alive inside them, something ineffable. It is in the very woodwork and architecture of beautiful places like Mount Tabor Presbyterian Church. And Tabor Space isn't just renewing the building, it's renewing the idea of what churches can be. Just the grandness of the chapel and the stained glass windows and the really high ceilings. You, know, you walk in and you can spend time in the sanctuary or in the coffee house in the original chapel and be really inspired and feel, I think, connected to something larger than yourself, whether that's the like, beautiful space just being so grand or being connected to a spiritual connection that is true for you is what is living on through opening it to the community, even though they're not becoming members of the Presbyterian Church. Thanks to Jim Day. He's playing the organ you're hearing right now. And a special thanks to Maddie Goldsmith, the events coordinator at Tabor Space, and my girlfriend. For the Nonprofit Hour, I'm Eric Teganoff. Eric's story on Tabor Space was produced as part of the Media Institute for Social Change's Radio U program in partnership with X-Ray FM. Now we turn to our host, Phil Bussey. This is Phil Bussey, and it's another edition of the Nonprofit Hour, the Media Institute for Social Change's Nonprofit Hour. I am pleased to be here with Debbie Castleton from Scrap. Um, let's, let's start at the beginning. How, how did Scrap start i mean was it was it uh somebody was having a yard sale and suddenly you decided that instead <laughs> of selling you know quote unquote junk let's make it into art uh no there was a, a couple of teachers that uh realized that there were some pretty good uh school materials still left and they started like a closet for the other teachers to uh, pull from so it was like a you know creative reuse exchange but from there, it started into a nonprofit, and uh, I think it started in somebody's garage. And then we actually, from when we were an official nonprofit, started at the rebuilding center in a small little corner and maybe 100 square feet or the size of this studio. <laughs> and that's what we started at. And now we're at uh, a, a lot larger space. And I guess that that does make a lot of sense, though, to have it at the rebuild center. I mean, right, there's right. there's an obviously uh, confluence of ideas. Exactly. And... Yeah, there's a bunch of organi- organizations that we consider community partners, Free Geek, you know, uh, the community warehouse, uh, uh, the rebuilding center, uh, Habitat for Humanity Restore. You know, there's all kinds of great um, creative reuse type of organizations and just reuse organizations in general that we partner with. And 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 since the rebuild center, uh, scrap has been um, in many locations. We've been in a few. Yes, I think after that we moved to I think North Williams and Failing, and that's where I had started on to the organization because I actually followed. We had a little truck that uh, did delivery, picked up stuff, and did deliveries of uh, materials that we couldn't use. 
it, it was painted very um, fun. And uh, we had a, a local artist, I think his name was Bruce Orr, he painted it. He was a puppet artist too. And uh, used materials from scrap. And I just, I kept seeing this scrap truck and it was scrappy. And I <laughs> followed Probably. it one day. Yeah, I just followed it to where it was, where its home was over on uh, North Failing. And I just, I walked in. I couldn't believe I had not known about it as a creative reuse artist myself doing found objects collage. It was like, uh, you know, the heavens opened up, oh, you know, when I walked in and I, I, the first thing I saw were the scrap packs, uh, collage packs that they had put together. And I just couldn't believe it. I was, I was sold. And then I joined the board and, and then after that we moved to MLK and Stanton and, um, we just outgrew the space. Uh, even though we had kind of tripled the size of the space there, it still was too small. And now we've doubled, almost tripled the size of our creative reuse store. And that's, I mean, how how exciting! I mean, to to to, to keep growing like yeah, that. Yeah, no, it's great. Uh, I think you know when times are hard financially for people, um, and even when they're not, it's still the right thing to do. Um, before, I mean, there's times I can't find the things I want or need at at scrap and so i'll have to resort to a bigger store but i always check scrap first and then i always find something i want so my new rule is i have to bring something in to donate before i can buy (laughs) because i have a very tiny space and and i feel like there's i mean you obviously you're you're a a reuse artist collage artist Mm -hmm. yourself but there's so many different ways that people plug into scrap i know that uh, there's kids camps. Yep. Uh, there's birthday parties, which yep. seem to be a really big hit where uh, kids takes whatever's given to them and they make them into ships or castles. Yeah. Yep. Uh, can you just list off a few of the ways quickly that, that you see different people plugging into scrap? I see many artists. I see a lot of parents, school projects. I see um designers, you know, for clothing. Uh, I see people buying stuff for their offices. There's office supplies. Um, Many different, a wide range of artists, not just, you know, paper and found objects artists like myself, but you wouldn't even know that they were reused items um, when the the kind of stuff that people make from there. But um, yeah, I'd say parents and artists and teachers are probably the three top shoppers and then a lot of people that donate are people that just want to do the right thing and just don't want to th- throw things into the waste stream. And and can you talk about that a little bit? I mean, what, what sort of donations? Is there anything that's just too junky? Well, we've received some used sex toys before. That's probably not an appropriate thing to donate. <laughs> uh, clothing, we don't take clothing, that kind of stuff. Sometimes we receive too much of something like binders, you know. Um, Schoolhouse Supplies takes uh, a lot of school supply stuff. And so we refer people to other organizations as well as they refer to us too. But I'd say everything from corks and bottle caps, we always take uh, buttons, fabric, yarn those are big sellers for us how fascinating i mean it just to think about portland uh on the spectrum of where you can you can put things you can take your old toilet give it to the rebuild center you right. can take your old computer give it to free geek exactly you can take your old clothes give them to to goodwill or to right. retread uh and office supplies uh, furniture yeah right. 
That's fascinating. It is. It's great because, I mean, every time I, I move, which unfortunately I move a lot for some reason, I never take anything to the dump. I always have some place for it here in Portland. And, and to me, that makes me feel great. I grew up here. Um, I work for uh, an environmental organization for a living. So it, it feels good to, to do the right thing. Now, you are, you're not on the staff right now. You had been on the staff. Is that no, I was the chair of the board for two terms and the secretary. I've been on the board for many, many years, and now I'm the chair of the Advisory Council for Portland. Advisory committee, board of directors. Right. What's the difference for you guys, and what different role do you play now? Well, it's a, it's a very different role for me. I'm used to being in a more governing role uh, and having all the liability issues as well, being on the board of directors. It's a big responsibility, and it's something I took very seriously. The board went, or the um, organization went national. Uh, we started opening scraps all over the U.S., and I really didn't have the ability to just fly to the different locations uh, as a chair of a board probably should. And we, I had a really great successor on the board, so I, th- I felt that, that we were in great hands and the board was really strong, so it was okay for me to step down. And so, so now you're, you, you can sort of fly by and give advice? Yeah, <laughs> I just uh, volunteer on a higher level, you know, help with marketing and outreach. That's what I do for a living for my paid job, so I do outreach and public involvement. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour. I'm talking with Debbie Castleton from Scrap. She's on the advisory board now. She had served two terms as the uh, on the board of directors. Yep. Um, Debbie, we're going to take a quick music break. Do you have a song either about junk or art or recycling well, or there, just a song you the, like? There is one song that all of us at Scrap, when we heard it, we just laughed because it just reminded us so much of, of Scrap. And it's the thrift shop song with Macklemore. Of, of course. Of course. I'm stunting and flossing and saving my money and I'm hella happy that's a bargain. I'm going to take your grandpa style. I'm going to take your grandpa style. No, for real. Ask your grandpa. Can I have his hand me down? The Lord jumpsuit and some house slippers. Dookie Brown leather jacket that I found, dig it. They had a broken keyboard, I bought a broken keyboard. I bought a ski blanket, then I bought a keyboard. Hello, hello, my ace man, my mellow. John Wayne ain't got nothing on my fringe game, hell no. I could take some pro wings, make them cool, sell those. The sneaker heads would be like, ah, uh, he got the Velcro. I'm gonna pop some tags, only got $20 in my pocket. I'm, I'm, I'm hunting, looking for a come up. This is being awesome. That was, of course, Macklemore and and the song that that he made big and and made thrift shops uh, <laughs> shopping so cool. Uh, Scrap has made uh, thrift shop shopping for art so cool as well. And I think it's I think it's interesting because when, before we went to a music break, we were talking some about the environmental implications of what Scrap does and other organizations that take reused or, or used materials. Uh, is there any, have you done any studies to quantify yeah. what impact this has to, to remove things or keep them out of the landfills? Yeah, actually we weigh everything that uh, we bring in. So, and then when it, it goes out onto the floor and sells, so we know that we removed at least 140 tons of materials from the waste stream last year. 140 tons? Yeah. Just last year, and it increases every year. Wow. Yeah. 
That's, I mean, I, I, I'm trying to visualize even what, would that be like a right. tanker full or? Well, at least a warehouse full. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is, that, that's, that's, that's really incredible. Yeah. And, that's, and then, I mean, there's obviously, there's a, there's the other side of the equation then, because then you're also not needing to manufacture right. new toys or art supplies as well. Right. Sometimes we'll get donations from somebody like a, a like. Um, Columbia Sportswear, for instance, and they give us a whole bunch of zipper pulls or zippers. Um, maybe they got the wrong color, and they and I love it because they're a local company. You know, Nike, Adidas, they donate their um, used or scraps of stuff. So, uh, you know, it's great that they know to do the right thing too, as a major corporation locally. You know, their headquarters being here and stuff. Now, now, as both as a, a as a re reuse artist and as well as working with scrap, I mean, does that mean that that you look at uh, old clothes and zippers, or you look mm-hmm. at uh, uh, when you're driving around on garbage day and you see things out on the curb? Do you look at them and like instantly, and in, in the the, the bubble above your head has an <laughs> art image? Yeah, unfortunately, yes. <laughs> Uh, some may call it hoarding. Uh, <laughs> I actually am not a hoarder. I watched hoarders just to make sure um, because I do sell it and get rid of it. Um, I, I'm selective in what I, but I'll see something like I'll, I'll see a bottle cap on the ground. I'll see and I'll think, oh, I have another bottle cap that's similar to that and it starts accumulating. So a lot of times I'll frame my art in something bizarre like zipper poles or cryogenic vials that were donated by a doctor's office lab. You know, the unused say that one more time. Cryogenic vials, yes. They're the where they do the little testing, their little plastic vials. So got it. They're little capsules of fun. They are they're small and they you can put stuff inside them. So uh, I will glue a hundred of them to uh, the edges of a frame, for instance, uh, because there's a huge amount of them. And I'll put little, what do you call that? Uh, light bright, you know, the little light bright things. Sure. Yeah, those kinds of things in them. So then they're colorful, you know, the white cryogenic vials. Or I'll cut out verses from a magazine and or a book and put those are just random words. So it's kind of like a surprise. It's a little mini surprise. That's, I mean, that that's, uh, it's very fun, and it also, it just, it's interesting to give uh, a second or a third life to an right, item. Right, right. And those hadn't been used before. They were just extra, or they were the wrong, you know, they didn't need them. So instead of throwing them away, and, you know, perfectly packaged goods, they just donated them to scrap. And I, and let's let's open up the, the conver- open up the seams on the conversation a little bit more in terms of, uh, you work in environmental services. What what sort of uh, feel free to get on your soapbox about waste <laughs> and uh, what sort of advice do you have to people? Or what sort of observations do you have about how the quote unquote average American wastes things? It's just nice knowing that I'm working for an organization that helps clean up the river and keeps the rivers clean, and. And then I have my artistic side that also incorporates the environment and the waste, removing stuff from the waste stream. So I'm removing stuff from the waste stream in a different way for work and then the other waste stream, you know. <laughs> it's it's all about waste, I guess, so. And and about redirecting that waste right. so that it, it, it cycles back or it, cycle, or it moves into a different direction. Exactly. 
This is Phil Bussey. It's the Media Institute for Social Change's nonprofit hour. I'm speaking with Debbie Castleton from Scrap. She's on the advisory board. Debbie, we're going to take another music suggestion right. from you. Well, another song that I love is um, by Marvin Gaye. It's Mercy, Mercy Me, and that's uh, based on um, improving the environment, believe it or not. So, um, And it just also touches it, it, uh, my heart. I love I love Marvin Gaye from way back. So. Oh, what, what what a beautiful song! Let's take a listen. On the oceans and upon our seas, fish full of mercury. That was the the great Marvin Gaye um, with his environmental song. Uh, this is Phil Bussey. I'm I'm talking on the Nonprofit Hour with Debbie Castleton from Scrap. Um, now, Debbie, it's it's really it's exciting. So Scrap has gone national. Yes, <laughs> um, yes. which is Scrap USA. Is that what that's yeah. the official title? Yeah. You know, and and I and and I know that us Portlandians uh, can be self congratulatory sometimes. How <laughs> special we are and unique right. and. Uh, in terms of our artistic inclinations, our environmental inclinations, which is certainly the nexus where Scrap stands. Um, however, obviously, those impulses exist elsewhere in the country. Right, exactly. And it's, you know, I haven't traveled really. And so hearing about these um, other cities that want to take part and be a, a Scrap baby or a Scrap, um, another piece of the Scrap USA um, is fantastic and it it makes me feel better for the future. And there, I mean, there are long time other creative reuse organizations uh, around the U.S. Uh, Scrap's not. It's it, it. Scrap is one of the largest for sure and longest running. But um, we have we've opened up Scraps in Traverse City, Michigan, Denton, Texas, New Orleans, Louisiana, Humboldt, California. Um, Washington D.C. and now we just opened one in Tri Cities, Washington. So, what a eclectic right, <laughs> collection right. of places. There's a big process uh, to go through to become part of our nonprofit organization and become. I mean, you really have to uh, work at the application process, and it's not just like we're going to open one anywhere. There really has to be a champion to take that on, someone who's maybe even willing to be unpaid for at least a year as a director. And, um, you know, Scrap PDX is still the mothership and the largest and probably almost the most successful still, but the, they're catching up. But we have a great executive director who lives in Boulder, Colorado, travels to all the organizations and she keeps everything for Scrap USA on on track, and they have director trainings and even potential new scraps um, 
all over the U.S. get the director training and they'll fly to one of the organizations. We just had one here, a director training in Portland in our new space. Yeah, I want to dig into this a little bit deeper because here, here an organization has gone from uh, essentially a teacher's closet right. of, of things to, <laughs> to the Rebuild Center to now uh, a franchise right. in a way. And there's obviously that must create strains on the organization or at least challenges in terms of monitoring uh, quality and, and delivery of services. It could. Uh, each scrap is unique in its organization, in, in its city, and it really depends. I mean, they're slightly different than, um, you know, Portland, Portland scrap. But I'd say our executive direct- director, uh, Kelly Carmichael Casey, she really keeps everybody consistent and works with all the directors. And we have... Um, an administrative person that helps out, you know, with operations as well. So they really, and the board of directors is now national. So we have board members from all over and they're really skilled at uh, keeping everyone on track. So if anybody's, you know, feeling lacking in services or anything, they have somebody to talk to. They talk to the other scraps. They have like a director's forum that they all talk to each other. So so they all work together. And it's maybe a little different than a franchise because they're not just individual in a way. They're all kind of, we're all kind of one big organization. And how, how are, uh, was it Denton, Texas mm-hmm. yeah. and Tri-Cities and someone in Washington, D.C., how are they finding out about scrap? How, how do the seeds get dispersed around the country? Well, Kelly and another, a past uh, staff member actually wrote a book on how to start a creative reuse organization. And uh, that kind of helped uh, get the word out. But just word of mouth, um, a lot of people had been to Portland and seen scrap, and then they wanted to start one in their hometown. I mean, I think at one point, when I was... Stepping down from the board, we had 81 applications to become scraps all over the U.S. Wow. Yeah. And they really go through a huge vetting process to get to be um, part of scrap. So that's why there's so few now. Um, I mean, well, it's not really a few. I mean, it's expanding every year. But and I think Tri-Cities just, just opened in New Orleans, I think, last year. So I think every year it just increases, but it is uh, a well-oiled machine and um, a lot of help from Kelly, definitely. I, and I mean, how surprising, like uh, not meaning any, any offense to scrap, but you walk in and you think like, oh, it's just, you right. know, it's an, it's an art supply store and right. it's, you don't think of it as a, you don't think of the backroom operations right. being a very sophisticated uh, both marketing and operational structure. I mean, it, it, the, the feeling of being in scrap is there's a bit of chaos. Right. All at right. least in the. Have in, you been to the new space in Portland here? I've been to the space that was on MLK and. Okay. You need to come to the one on Southwest 18th and Alder now. It is not as chaotic feeling because it's I much. I like the chaos. <laughs> I do. I, I do too. It still has that feeling of a eclectic behavior and a wide range of customers every age and gender and color and I mean it's just amazing still to see the different types of people that are in there and what they're buying 
um, people sitting on the floor and going through bins and sorting stuff. And now we have tables that you can sit at and actually sort through stuff. Um, but there's a lot more light. Uh, we have windows, <laughs> which is great. And a little more space in between aisles, which is great for a big person like me. <laughs> and and I, I also want to talk about just uh, the scrap going national and, and this organization. One thing that I, I would think, as well as having a strong blueprint and administrative structure that would help uh, launch other scraps, is the model would seem to be fittingly financially sustainable. Right. And I say fittingly because here's an organization that is about sustainability and reducing waste, but also I think uh, on like some nonprofits that have to rely on grants or membership. Right. Scrap has a product. I mean, you have a, right. a, a built-in revenue stream. How how much of Scrap is sustained by that, that the customer purchases? I'd say... At one point from when I was on the board, when we were, um, we had already started Scrap USA, I'd say we were 80% self-sustaining. Um, we do rely on grants for our programming a lot. We have our fill mines, not landfills, which is picking up items from corporations and uh, actually doing outreach to get businesses to donate uh, a larger volume of pro products for us. Right. And uh, that would be like our business outreach program. We have our education program. Um, we actually still have a our scrap studio over on MLK uh, not in the building we were in it was a, it's a like the annex that we were at uh, across from Stanton on MLK so we still have like a thousand square feet for our education program where we have camp scrap and uh, workshops and birthday parties etc so it's uh, that's that's a big program where you know just for different types of programs that we have we need to get some grants for Roughly 80% self-sustaining is an right, enviable number for right. any organization. Exactly, especially a nonprofit. That that that's that's wonderful. Uh, Debbie Castleton from Scrap is here talking with us uh, uh, on the nonprofit hour. Uh, Debbie, thank you so much for coming in. It it is so exciting to hear about really. I mean, the explosive growth of Scrap. I mean, it's exciting to hear about uh, the good work that Scrap does, both for uh, reducing from the from the landfills, uh, as well as for the creative uh, inspirations that it gives. But then, how how fun to hear about the national expansion. Debbie Castleton from Scrap, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. This has been Phil Bussey with the Nonprofit Hour. Debbie, how about let's 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 take it out with with one more song. How about um, and this also brings me back to this this dates me a little. Uh, Depeche Mode's "The Landscape Is Changing." <laughs> Wonderful.
Welcome back to the Nonprofit Hour, brought to you by the Media Institute for Social Change and produced in the studios of X-Ray FM. For the second half of this week's show, we'll be taking a look back at our earlier interview with Jeff Hawthorne of the Regional Arts and Culture Council. This is Phil Bussey, and it is the Media Institute for Social Change's Nonprofit Hour. We have something a little bit different this morning. Uh, normally, we bring in people who are running, managing nonprofits. This morning, we have Jeff Hawthorne with the Regional Arts and Culture Council, and which, which is, is uh, part of the larger ecosystem of nonprofits. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And so is is it is it fair to call the Regional Arts and Culture Council and I'll stop saying that and I'll start saying RAC. Yes. Is it is it fair to call RAC uh is it a funder, a support system, a parental system? How how does it fit into the uh, the ecosystem of nonprofits in Portland. Yeah, RAC is is definitely a funder, and once upon a time, that was one of the only things that we did in our mission to really cultivate a strong arts and culture community and to support the artists who live here. So we've moved beyond being just a funder. Um, we also, um, for many years, have... Um, commissioned and maintained the public art collection in the city of Portland and Multnomah County. But we're also increasingly involved in um, doing whatever it takes to create an environment where artists and arts organizations and creatives can can make a living, can contribute to the community. So doing more in the area of technical assistance, um, forging collaborations with other community partners to address community issues through the arts, um, to advocate for arts funding at the public and private uh, sector, and uh, increasingly playing a role in uh, restoring arts education back in our public schools. Before this, uh, you were very involved in the arts, and 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 you were uh, uh, involved in theater. Yeah, my background is theater. Yeah, yeah. I was I was one of these kids who. Um, learned to read and spell uh, very early uh, at four years old, um, thanks to Sesame Street and kind of other creativity things that were important to my family at the time. But I got bored in school and I had a difficult time in in middle school. So thank goodness by the time high school ro- rolled around that I found theater and it was something that I was very good at, that I really enjoyed, that really helped keep me in school. So, so that was my passion. Um, in school, and um, I, pers- I pursued theater um, for quite some time after that, not as an actor or a director um, or a designer, but I-, I found actually arts administration of all things um, and went to the University of Portland, which has a wonderful um, theater administration program. Um, worked for several years at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in Ashland. Um, and then Portland Center Stage, when when Ashland was establishing that company here, which is now fully independent. So, um, but now it's really great to be working for an organization that supports not only performing artists and theaters, but um, all all kinds of artists and all kinds of arts organizations in our community. And and what are there other advantages? So the, the advantage of being. Uh, somewhat more independent from the city, mm-hmm. uh, of being a 501c3, uh, there's financial advantages. Are there other advantages that come along uh, with, with RAC being uh, its own 
nonprofit? We see lots of advantages just at the administrative level. I mean, we're obviously free to be much more entrepreneurial um, in how we uh, build a relationship, how we establish a contract with an artist, how quickly we can pay an artist. I mean, being freed of some of the bureaucracies that exist with, within government enable us to do our work more expediently, more entrepreneurially. Um, and, and also just um, in terms of private sector fundraising, I think that's one of the greatest advantages of being an independent uh, nonprofit is that we really can go out and raise money on behalf of the arts community and then grant it out to them. Um, if we were a government agency, people wouldn't be able to get a tax deduction for making a contribution to us, but they can when they donate to RAC. Absolutely. And that's, that's, and, and I imagine uh, our people are fairly generous in Portland about the arts. Increasingly so. I mean, you've probably heard lots of stories about some of the lack of philanthropic tra uh, tradition in Portland and in the Pacific Northwest compared to our peers um, in New England, for example. But um, Portland is a place where the community knows and appreciates um, the, the creative community here and how critical it is uh, to have artists and arts organizations, healthy arts organizations, in this community. And I, I think the community, when asked to support um, that sector, um, we, we find that they are very generous. How unique is RAC compared to other cities? Almost every urban center has a local arts agency of some sort. There is, for example, um, a local arts agency that serves Vancouver and Clark County, um, but they do not receive very much money. So uh, it's driven largely on volunteers, and they're able to run a few programs that do help the artists in that, in that community. So in Portland, what is different is the fact that the city of Portland has traditionally invested very, very well in its artists, um, and in its arts agency, which is now RAC, um, it has had the uh, it has shown the foresight to go out and ask the citizens if they'd be willing to tax themselves to increase the amount of arts education in our schools and to increase the amount of public support that goes to arts organizations. So that's the Arts Education and Access Fund or the arts tax, um, and. I'd say the third thing that's unique about Portland's local arts agency is that we fund individual artists. Mm -hmm. um, many communities do, but most local arts agencies, if they do provide any funding at all, they're really only funding nonprofit organizations. So we're really proud to have several grant-making programs and technical assistance programs that serve the individual artists who live here. You know, and, and, and Jeff, one of the things that we do on the Nonprofit Hours is we have our guest uh, do a little DJing for us. And it seems like that, what you were just talking about with RAC funding some individual artists, that's a great lead-in. Uh, for one of the songs, because RAC has funded uh, a fair number of musicians. We have. We fund all disciplines, all manner of artists, and um, every year there are a number of extraordinary musicians who apply to us for projects that we are only too happy to fund. Uh, do you have a song from one of those artists we could play? I do. Um, one of the artists we have funded recently is Holcomb Waller. So here's one of his songs. Great. I 
like a vision she stepped out and all the fear that fed his doubt just surrendered to the hour the bridesmaids and the flowers the promises they made before the gathered here today's will have crept through the reception like a child freshly scorned i caught up with all my I thought I could have cried But all my ghosts laid down and died This is Phil Bussey. Uh, it's the Media Institute for Social Changes, the Nonprofit Hour. We are so pleased to have Jeff Hawthorne in the studio with us. Jeff is with Regional Arts and Culture Council, best known as RAC. Uh, that was just... Holcomb Waller, who was one of the artists who has been funded uh, through through RAC grants, and 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 Jeff, you're the director of co- uh, community engagement. That's right. And and that would sound like that's part of your role is to uh, uh, to to keep uh, the general public aware of of the importance of of arts. How how do you go about? doing that? Like, how do you get that message out? Yeah, some of it's very targeted. Um, One of my responsibilities is to raise money from the private sector, uh, as well as all of our public partners for the work that we do. So, you know, a fair amount of my work is targeted to having conversations with people who can provide the resources that we need in order to support the creative community here. But increasingly, um, we do want to play a role in um, advocating to the community at large um, what is the importance of the arts community here and how can you all support them. So that's why um, nine and a half years ago we started a workplace giving program, for example, a way to talk to um, tens of thousands of people in companies all across the region um, go in, speak with their employees about the importance of the arts organizations who are here, bring artists with us to show um, how powerful a piece of music or a, a painting can be, um, to talk about how the arts intersect with other aspects and other community interests, such as graduation rates, health care, juvenile delinquency, um, how arts can be uh, tools for solving some of those community problems. And then we ask for a payroll deduction contribution. So that's a program that raised uh, $760,000 last year, uh, mostly just through grassroots gifts of $60 here and $100 there. Um, and next year, because it will be the 10th anniversary of Work for Art, uh, we're going to try to raise a million dollars. And then 100% of that money, every dollar, goes back out uh, to the arts community that we serve as grants from the Regional Arts and Culture Council. So that's one example of a way that we can not only get the message out about how important our arts community is, but to raise money on their behalf. And 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 uh, can you give me just, you know, can you give me a 30-second pitch? Um, think, think of me if I was, you know... Sure. Stubborn, uh, fifty-year-old business owner uh, that you're trying to convince the importance of the arts to to Portland. Uh, what's your best pitch on that? Well, I don't know if it's my best pitch, but one of the <laughs> things we we like to say is that um, 
most Portlanders um, really do participate in the arts um, and are enjoying the Art Museum and Portland Center Stage and Miracle Theater and Ride Around Portland and, and all of these wonderful eclectic arts organizations. But, but even if you never step foot in the Opera House or in your local theater company, um, we think that you will recognize the value of having these creative small businesses in your community because they contribute to the creativity of your own workforce. Uh, they contribute to the economy. Um, these arts organizations employ more than 19,000 people combined who all pay taxes, who support our school systems and our other public services. So um, it's really clear that the arts, uh, the nonprofit arts community is a very important sector, not only for the arts services they provide, but for the way that they benefit our community and our economy. That is Jeff Hawthorne. He is the Director of Community Engagement for RAC. And this is Phil Bussey with the Media Institute for Social Change's Nonprofit Hour. Jeff, we're going to go to another music break. Do you have another artist, perhaps, that, that RAC has... That, that Rack has, has funded or supported in the past? Yeah, let's hear something from Alicia Joe Robbins. Excellent. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Media Institute for Social Changes, the Nonprofit Hour. I am in the studio with Jeff Hawthorne from RAC, the Regional Arts and Culture Council, uh, a really a dynamic nonprofit uh, that 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 uh, you moved out of the nest, so to speak, of, uh, about almost twenty years ago. Yes, uh, it's our twentieth anniversary this year. That congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Um, and and uh, uh, you're a parent in so many ways. Uh, I mean, certainly Rack is responsible in some regard, if not, uh, correct me, maybe all for the public art. Uh, there's the new, uh, is, is it on the Burnside or the Hawthorne Bridge? The sort of, it looks like a square birdcage. Yeah, yeah. That's a controversial piece of public art right there. Why, why is it controversial? Well, it's, it's large. And uh, this is a piece called Inversion Plus Minus, which was just installed uh, a year ago. Um, as funded by the expansion of the East Side Streetcar. And the way public art works is anytime there's a publicly funded capital construction project, they set aside 2% of the cost of that project for the Regional Arts and Culture Council to commission and create and install this public artwork. So that particular sculpture has, has gotten um, 
more comments um, than most, just because, in part, it's it's a very large-scale piece of artwork, which um, most of the things you see in the city of Portland are much smaller than that, um, you know, life-size statues and often smaller works. That's a monumental, I think it's three or four stories tall, um, so it's noticed more than a lot of pieces, and it's um, designed to kind of emulate uh, the feeling of the ghosts of warehouses um, past and the structure of old buildings that lived in the inner southeast side. Um, so by design, it's this lattice work of steel, rusted steel, um, which to some people just looks like an incompleted construction project. Um, so, you know, some people really love it. Some people don't care for it so much. And that's the nature of public art. I think it's fantastic. I'm glad you like it. And another thing that some people don't know about that piece is it's actually two separate pieces, one at the Morrison and one at the Hawthorne. So one of them, the ghost is, you know, the shape of the building itself. And then the other site, it's the negative space. So they build the lattice piece around where the building would be, leaving this empty space in the middle that is the shape of a building. I'm liking it more and more. It's pretty cool. Uh, do you have a favorite uh, piece of public art that's out there? Um, that's one of them. I also like, I'm really fond of a new piece um, that was also funded by the streetcar. It uh, was designed by Jorge Pardo. Um, it's a streetcar shelter um, just north of the Rose Quarter. And it's this really colorful, multifaceted, um, it's got orange and red and yellow hues. Um, and it's just this really beautiful, um, interesting shape for a streetcar shelter. And it's very artistic. So when you're coming across the, uh, the Broadway Bridge, when you're going east, uh, you see this piece that is picks up on some of the colors of the Broadway Bridge, but also these other bright and cheery colors that help bring I think a little sun and color into people's lives on a rainy day. I want to talk a little bit, Jeff, about and and I know you're the director of uh, of community engagement and maybe aren't part of this process. But what is the process for uh, deciding what pieces are who is commissioned? There's there's a process and certain taste. Uh, dictate than than what gets out there. How how yeah. does that work? How does that work? Yeah, I mean you're right. Art art can be such a subjective thing. So the best way we have found to approach this question is um, when there is a project and we know um, how much money we have and and the the site for this project. Um, we will convene a panel of community volunteers. Um, so it could be anywhere from five to 12 people who represent the neighborhood, who represent the project that is being constructed, who represent uh, local businesses in the area, um, citizens. We always make sure that we have a few artists who understand um, the complexities of incorporating you know, metal into a sidewalk or uh, paints and how they weather over the years in in Portland. So we we try to just assemble a team of people who can then um, put out a call and let the arts community know that we have X amount of dollars for a project that is meant to achieve these goals. Um, 
and we we mull through all of the proposals we receive. And typically, um, we'll come up with a few finalists and then ask those artists to kind of really refine those concepts and then do a big presentation uh, to the Public Art Advisory Committee that says, my proposal for this project it looks like this and will stand the test of time uh, because of these reasons or my experience um, will demonstrate that, that this is a piece of public artwork that, that can um, be out in the right of way for a long period of time. And um, ultimately, they'll just make a selection based on aesthetics, confidence in the artist, um, and, and taking all of the community's uh, interests into consideration. Uh, and and because I am I am sometimes uh, behave like a seventy five year old retiree and love walking tours. Is there is there a walking tour? Is there a map that has uh, all of these these rack funded? public art pieces uh, available? There are. Um, most of the walking tours that are done by the organizations that are based downtown that do walking tours include a fair amount of, of stops at public artworks downtown. Uh, Rack and Travel Portland produce a public art walking tour brochure that will show you within the central city, so everything maybe from the convention center on the east side and this inversion plus minus artwork that you and I were talking about earlier, and certainly everything downtown um, and in the near and west side, those are all plotted on a map so that you can um, kind of set your own walking tour of the pieces you want to see. And then we also have created an app, which unfortunately is only available for iPhones, but it's a really good app um, that you can pop up on your phone um, and and get more information about a piece of artwork that you may be standing in front of um, right then and there and want more information about, and it will plot other public artworks that are near you. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. There, there's an app for that. Public Art PDX. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour. I'm speaking with Jeff Hawthorne from Rack, and and it's really amazing, Jeff. I mean, just just visually, what Rack has contributed to the to the city, uh, as well as as throughout. And and when we come back from this next song break, I want to talk about some of the impact uh, Rack has had on uh, education and the importance of that. But let's let's do go to another one of uh, Rack's funded uh, musicians. Great. Yeah. Another. Um musician that we have funded recently is uh, the great Ben Darwish. the uh, Media Institute for Social Changes Nonprofit Hour. That was Ben Darwish. Yes. 
And he has received funding from the Regional Arts and Culture Council. I'm talking with their, their director of community engagement, Jeff Hawthorne, and this is Phil Bussey. Uh, before we went to our music break, we, we were talking about some of the, the visual pieces that are around town. Uh, Jeff, what again, there's an, there's an app if people have iPhones that they can download, and it, and it has some maps and can get them around. What, what was that again? Uh, Public Art PDX. Excellent. And, and and throughout the show, we've been playing uh, musicians who have received individual grants because you have both organizational right. and uh, individual or artist grants. Uh, one of the other things that, that RAC certainly does is uh, help support art education in, uh, in Portland public schools. Actually, in the entire region. So okay. Clackamas, Multnomah, and Washington County. And and I mean, let's just start with like the the beginning question: Why? Why? Why is that? Why is that important? Well, um, we know that the average person, ninety five percent of the people, actually know that arts education is critical to our children's education. And Phil, when you and I were growing up, uh, we probably had a lot of great arts education and music teachers in our schools. Um, but in Portland, in the last twenty years. Um, the amount of arts education that our kids were receiving has been drastically reduced. And so about 10 years ago, uh, we started uh, having community meetings to decide what RAC could do about it. And of course, the biggest thing is funding. Um, And at the time, we didn't know how we could necessarily uh, come up with the funding to restore all of our art and music teachers that had been cut. But what we did hit on was that RAC could do a better job of leveraging the arts community itself to provide some arts education uh, for our public schools. And what we didn't want to happen was just to kind of create these one-off um, you know, fly-by arts experiences, but rather really integrate the idea of arts education into classroom learning. And so what we came up with is an initiative called the Right Brain Initiative that strategically pairs uh, K-5 through classroom teachers with artists in the community so that they can co-design some lesson plans and some experiences that use the arts and use that artist to teach other standard subjects like history, like social studies, like science, math, and reading. And what we're finding as a result is that, uh, no surprise really, uh, students learn more when they have uh, music and dance and theater and visual art experiences to help them learn that content as opposed to just having to read in a book, take a test, hear a lecture. Um, this idea of infusing the arts into the standard curriculum is really proving to help students learn. I just want to, we're, we're, we're wrapping up our conversation with Jeff Hawthorne, the Director of Community Engagement for the Regional Arts and Culture Council. Thank you so much for, for being with us. And thank you for RAC, that everything that the Regional Arts and Culture Council does to, I mean, to make Portland a little bit more Portlandia, uh, to, you know, to have the visual arts that's out there to sponsor the the uh, individual musicians and some who we've heard uh, in today's nonprofit hour and, and, and just then supporting the, the arts organizations. And you have one more song to take us out? Yeah, we thought it would be fun to uh, just play a little something by Cindy Lauper about how money changes everything. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much. Jeff Hawthorne uh, with the Regional Arts and Culture Council. And this has been Phil Bussey for the Media Institute for Social Changes, nonprofit hour. 
That's all from the Nonprofit Hour this week. We'd like to thank our guests, Debbie Castleton of Scrap and Jeff Hawthorne of Rack. Next time you're at a computer, check out the Nonprofit Hour on Facebook. You can also find us on SoundCloud or follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at Nonprofit Hour. This week's Nonprofit Hour was produced by me, Ann Kirkpatrick. Special thanks goes to Eric Tegadoff for his story on Tabor Space. Shout out to our hosts, Julie Falk and Phil Bussey, and to the Media Institute for Social Change for making this show possible. This is X-Ray FM, where radio is yours.